Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking in verse verse number 12 and reading through verse number 17. Here's what he says. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me to be faithful. He appointed me to the ministry even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, now now if, if you mark your Bible, if you underline, if you highlight, whatever you do, underline verse number 14, because this is the key, this is like the foundation of the text. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I love the way the King James renders it, of whom I am the chief. God came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And hopefully as we grow in Christ, as we learn more about him, we learn also more about ourselves. We learn more about our sin nature. We begin to feel like the chief. We become less prideful and more humble before God as we become aware of his righteousness and our unrighteousness. And he says this later on. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason. So that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. So this answers the question, why did God make salvation possible? To save us? Yes. But also, so that we could be billboards of glory for others to come to know Christ as well. See, if we're not living in the full understanding of God's grace, we will not live in the full testimony of his salvation either. Now look at what he says in verse number 17. Now unto the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And to that we say amen and I agree, right? This is the treatise of grace. This is what grace did in Paul's life. Later on, he would, or actually at other points in his ministry, he would testify before King Agrippa. He would testify and he would continually talk about the grace of God that set him free. He won't talk about how educated he was, although he was. He won't talk about how amazing he was, although he was. He won't talk about how he was a dual citizen of both uh, the nation of Israel and the Roman Empire because he came uh, from, a, from a, multi, a multicultural home, although he was. What he says and what he rests upon is the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And to that we have to ask as a church 2,000 plus years later, what else do we have to rest on either? You see, I think what we do and what we're tempted to do is we say, yeah, I've got Jesus, that's great, but here's what else we need in order for everything to be okay. Folks, if we've got Jesus, we've got what we need. If we have Jesus, we've got what we need. If we have his grace, we have something amazing and something that is miraculous and something that can never be taken away from us. Here's a trivia, here's a trivia question for you. You like trivia? All right, uh, Stacy and I had this moment this week where we realized that we are actually older than we really are, okay? Uh, we, we found ourselves sitting at the couch in our home with, with, with TV trays in our laps. You know, these ones that like slide under the couch and, and we were watching Jeopardy as we ate dinner. No, I'm not 90 years old. I'm 40, but you know, um, anyway. So that's, that's what happened. So, but here, <laughs> I don't even know where we were going with that, but I, oh, trivia, I like trivia. I like watching Jeffrey. She does it because she loves me, and that's, that's just kind of how it is. But here's the trivia question. Of all the songs ever written 
of all the songs ever recorded, which song do you think has been recorded the most in music history? The song that we just sang, Amazing Grace. Of all the songs that have ever been recorded by the, the most number of artists, the most versions, if you go to Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you get your music at, you just type in the song Amazing Grace and you will see, I mean, numerous renditions of the song. And the question is, why does a song, an old hymn that is written by an, a guy in England back a couple hundred years ago who was a former slave trader, why does that resonate so much with us? And we're not talking about just church people who record the song. We're talking about people who ultimately later on in their lives say, I don't know if I believe in God, but yet they still record this song. Why? Not just to make money, but because it resonates with them. The grace of God resonates with us. Why? Because God designed us to resonate with the grace of God. He designed us with this vacuum, this hole inside of us that only God's love and grace and mercy will fill. John Newton was the name of, is the name of the author, and in 1779, he wrote this song called Amazing Grace. Later on, or earlier, it was given a title. Uh, it was like, as, as I review the God's, goodness and, God's goodness and mercy to me, but it was later on titled Amazing Grace. It's been called the Baptist Anthem. It's been called the John 3.16 of the hymnal, because everybody knows and everybody has heard Amazing Grace. But what they sometimes don't know about John Newton's life is that John Newton lived a very colorful and wicked past. John Newton, for the, for the majority of his life, was all about John. He was after making money, and he was a, he was a, a merchant captain of, of merchant ships. And one day he got into this very lucrative business that was springing up in England um, called slave trading. He would drive his ship down to the coast of Africa and pick up uh, captured, captured slaves and then drive them over to the coast of the United States and sell them and ship them over there. It was probably the most wicked and evil way to make money at that time, but this is what John Newton did with his life. Later on, something grabs his attention, and we believe, what history tells us, we believe what grabs his attention was that he met one of the slaves on the way over, and he, he saw just how, how peaceful he seemed to be, and he began to tell them about Jesus. And then he began, he got converted to Christ. And later on in life, John Newton goes, it's kind of like the modern day Paul, if you will, or the, the Paul of the 18th century. He, uh, he gets converted, and he stops sl uh, trading slaves, and he becomes an Anglican minister, uh, a pastor in the, in the Church of England. Also, he became an abolitionist that worked very closely with, Wilbur, uh, uh, with, me, with William Wilberforce. Sorry, I about said Wilbur William Force. With William Wilberforce to end slavery and to end the slave trade and any act slave activity within the nation of England which just a few decades later, the United States would follow in the abolition of slavery as well. So how does a man go from slating, uh, trading slaves to then making his life's journey about preaching the grace of God and also seeing slavery not be a thing anymore in the world that he lived in? There's no really human example except for the miraculous and the amazing grace of God. So the question that we have to ask ourselves this morning, we've all heard this word. Some of you may even have the name grace. What is grace? We all heard about it. We all want it, but we sometimes can't define it. And truly, if we were to define God's grace, it would probably take the rest of our lives of just preaching on grace to be able to even begin to try to do it justice. Many of you have probably heard the way grace is described as God's riches at Christ's expense, you know, G-R-A-C-E. And that's a pretty good way for us to remember, I guess, the key components of grace. It's God pouring out his riches, and he did that only because it cost him his son, Jesus Christ. 
Other people say it is God's love taking the initiative to meet man's need, whatever the need may be. And that's part of grace as well. Some people say that grace is simply love that is stooping down to meet a need. So anytime we reach out to, we reach out to, to meet a need in the name of Jesus Christ, we are becoming agents of God's grace as well. But you see, some people confuse grace with another beautiful attribute of God, which is God's mercy, because God is full of grace, but he's also full of mercy as well. And you really can't have one without the other, and one triggers the other into action as well. You see, mercy is, to me, simply not getting what I deserve. What do we deserve according to Scripture in our sin? Well, we deserve death. We deserve sickness. We deserve, we deserve absence from the care of God. We deserve all kinds of not good things, right? But mercy is God stepping in and saying, I know you deserve this, but because of my mercy, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. And then that would be just miraculous enough that God is merciful. But then what we see is God is full of grace, and his mercy then triggers his grace, and grace is then giving you the good that you don't deserve. Not only am I going to forgive you, but I'm also going to reward you, and I'm going to gift you with so many things. So here's how mercy works. Mercy works. Lord, forgive me of my sins. I'm going to forgive you. I shouldn't, but I, and I, don't, I, 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 I don't need to, but I'm going to. I'm going to forgive you and wipe the slate clean. Last Sunday, we looked at the, the idea of repentance from Psalm 51 when David came to the Lord and said, Lord, just be merciful to me. Just show me mercy. And God, repent, he repented of his sins, and God forgave him. So that's mercy, right? But then grace is salvation. I will not only forgive you of your sins, but I will forgive you evermore, and I will make you my son or your, my daughter, and I will give you a home in glory. And my son, Jesus Christ, will be the master carpenter up there preparing a mansion for you in heaven like John 14 said. See how it's all weaving together? Because that's what the Bible is about. It's woven together as a story and a declaration of God's mercy and grace to people who don't deserve any of it. See, mercy is not getting what I deserve. Grace is getting what I don't, getting the good that I don't deserve. So grace goes beyond mercy. Mercy is the governor giving a guilty man a pardon, while grace is the governor that gives the man a pardon and then takes him home to the mansion to live with him as his child. So how would we define grace if somebody said, what is grace? Well, this is the best def definition that I've come up with in Derek Holmes' theological study. Grace is God's freely given, unmerited favor towards sinful and failing man. It's the expression of forgiving, redeeming, restoring love toward the unworthy. Now that's a mouthful to try to cover a lot of stuff, isn't it? So sometimes we have to basically look at the best description of grace. The best description that I can give or the adjective that we can give to grace is just what the song says, is that grace is amazing. Grace is, now we use that word amazing to talk about a lot of different things. Right? Well, we overuse the word amazing. Back when it was penned, it wasn't, it wasn't a word that was used a whole, lot, it, a whole lot then. So to say that God's grace was amazing was something special. But God's grace is amazing. The fact that a holy and a righteous and sinless God would show grace to an unholy, unrighteous, and sinful man makes no sense no matter what scale, no matter what metric you measure it by. The sad thing is that today... Many Christians who live under the grace of God every day have not only gotten used to it, we've gotten over it. We've gotten over it. And here's how I know this, because if we, have, if we haven't gotten over the grace, we would be more apt to give grace to others. If we don't get over God's grace, we're more apt to worship him and look for ways to worship him rather than looking for excuses not to. 
You see, God's grace is something that we should never be underwhelmed by. And when we're underwhelmed by the grace of God, an unbelieving world sees that and thinks, well, what's so special about this God that you worship, this God that you post about, this God that you tell me I need to believe in if he's not that special and amazing to you? The problem with Christians today is that we've somehow gotten over the grace of God. We've become more amazed by lesser things. Lesser things, like money or power, or especially in a season that we're in today with an election cycle. We're more amazed by politicians and, 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 and justices and all of those things than we are with God and his grace for us. So grace defined, grace demonstrated as well. How do we demonstrate grace? Well, we demonstrate grace by forgiveness and then a standing in our forgiveness that goes beyond, beyond anything that we could imagine. That God would be willing to forgive our sin and not just pardon us, but then make us his child is amazing. So what is it about God's grace that's still so amazing? Because let's be honest, the gospel's been preached for centuries. I mean, can't we come up with something new? It's getting old and tired, right? No, the gospel's not old and tired. It just hasn't come to bear yet in our lives a lot of times or in our spirits. Because when it does, it makes a difference. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the grace of our Lord, now what's that next word? What's it say? Overflowed. The grace of our Lord overflowed. What that means is he's never going to run out of grace. What that means is God never intended for grace to be replaced as the most amazing thing towards man. God's grace overflowed to us along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This verse tells us that God's grace is overflowing and that it is found in Christ and in Christ alone. We won't find it anywhere else. And that grace, what I'm hoping we're understanding is, it's not just a word. Grace is not just some philosophical idea that's out here up, up high somewhere where somebody has to come along and try to bring it down for us to understand it because grace is not just a word. Grace is not just an idea or a philosophy. Grace is a verb. God intended for grace to be a verb because grace takes action. Grace takes action, which means I don't rest in the grace of God. I take the grace of God and I use it to show grace to other people. That's how it's supposed to work for us as the church. So the problem is if we're not looking at God's grace, then we're not amazed enough to take grace out somewhere else. And that's why we begin thinking, I need to offer something different. I need to offer a really killer program. Not a killing program, but a killer program. That was a word that we used that was, meant awesome one, at one point. We need to offer these awesome programs or this awesome, you know, this, this awesome experience every time we come to church. No, God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. So I want to look this morning at what makes God's grace so amazing. And we're going to kind of tie in the verses that we sang this morning from the, from the song as well. Because God's grace is a verb. God's grace is action. And it does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the first thing that God's grace does for us, the first verb of grace is that it is a saving grace. God's grace saves us. See, like last Sunday we talked about the repentance of David. And how he went in and he said, I'm sorry to, to God. And how his heart was just set on nothing but forgiveness from God. And how desperate he was for that after his sin with Bathsheba. And we may look at David and his sin with Bathsheba that led to the death of Uriah. And also the death of his son and all of this. And think, man, how in the world could God forgive that? Well, thankfully, we're not God. I wonder sometimes if people knew the extent of our sins, how they would look at us and say, how could God forgive you? 
And that's really a picture of the church. A lot of sinners looking around thinking, man, how did God forgive me? He forgave you too. How did he forgive me? It's God's saving grace. God's grace is what saves us. In verse number 15 of our text, Paul says, this is a, a saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. So it tells us this, that Christ is the giver and the source of grace to save sinners. I will find grace no other place but Jesus Christ. And you can search for grace and you can search for salvation anywhere else in the world, but you're always going to come up short. This is why so many people are left dejected and jaded about life because they've put their stock and their trust in so many things only to find it fail over and over and over and over again. And then we're left to just believe what is there except for just for me to find my personal happiness and then when the day of death comes, I hope I lived a happy life and I just made myself happy. What a shallow, miserable existence. Here's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. For by grace... Are you saved through faith, not of yourselves? It is the gift of God. It's not from our works so that no one can boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So this gives us kind of the, the formula for how we are saved. It is by grace that we are saved, right? Not by faith. Many people say, well, I got saved because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, faith is the conduit, but grace is the source. Faith is how I receive it, I put my faith in Jesus, but grace is the source. You see, if I just say, if I take grace out of the salvation equation, then I have somehow been able to earn it because if I had enough faith, I convinced God that I was good enough to be saved. No, grace at the beginning says, I'm not good enough to be saved, so I fall upon his grace, and now I trust in him with my faith. You see, we must never minimize the role of grace in our salvation because it's grace that saves us. Listen to what the first verse that John Newton penned. We sang it just a minute ago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When we realize the grace of God, we come to the place where we realize just how awful it was without his grace. That spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were blind to even see it until God in his grace showed us his mercy. So what does God's grace save us from? Well, he saves us from the condemnation of sin, that we are all sinners and therefore we deserve death, but his grace saves us from that and gives us life. We are saved from the wages of sin, which is death. We are saved from spiritual death, from eternal separation of God and hell. And also, many times, his grace saves me from myself because left to my own, I will self-destruct every single time. God's grace saves me from that. His grace saves me. God is not willing, Second Peter says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance. So God's grace is not limited either. God's heart's desire for all of humanity, the best and the worst among us, all need grace. And the best and the worst among us, God wants. Because we're his chief creation. We're his precious creation created in his image. So that person that you can't stand on Facebook, they bear the image of God. And God wants to show grace to them. What does that say about us who are God's children already? That we should show and offer grace to them as well. But if we go down in the comment section, what do we normally see? <laughs> I mean, you go down in the comment section, that's all you see is grace, right? Just grace upon grace in the comment section on social media, right? 
And I believe this, that in, in, in a world and a society where it is so limited, just a little bit of grace is going to go a long way. A long way. It's grace that saves us, not faith. God's not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His grace is also not just a saving faith, but it's a justifying grace. So after he saves us, after he seals us for eternity, he now justifies us. This speaks to how we stand in grace. This is grace that goes with us. See, a lot of times what we do is we'll look at grace as this one thing that I received at the moment I got saved, and then I started walking on, and I left God's grace behind me. No, God's grace goes with us. That's his justification of our sins. He says, Paul said this in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 in our text. He says, I'm the worst of the sinners, but I received mercy. And then he goes on to say, and then God called me into the ministry, and then God did this with me. That is his justification of me. All of those sins that I committed in the past are under the blood, and now I'm a new creation, and here's what God's doing with me because of his grace. See, the Bible calls us trophies of God's grace. What do we normally do with trophies? We just put them up, right? And then what do we do about two or three weeks later? We dust them. And then we dust them again, and we dust them for the rest of our lives, unless you just give up on dusting after a while. And then eventually, eventually, after 25 years, you say, you know what? I think I'm going to remember that state championship I won. I don't need this big monstrosity in my room to remind me and everyone else who comes in and then looks at me and like, there's no way you played basketball. You may have ate a basketball, but you didn't play basketball. This is the thing. God calls us trophies of God's grace, but here's what God does with the trophies. He doesn't just save us and sit us on a shelf. He saves us, and then he uses us as billboards for God's grace. We're not just trophies sitting on the shelf being dusted off. We are agents of God's grace to take with us everywhere, everywhere he sends us. Look at what it says in verse number two. Twas or in verse number two of the song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved, how precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed." What he's saying is the very moment I was saved, all that slave trading, all that stuff, the guilt, the condemnation that I bore before God is gone. Now, did he still have trouble looking in the eyes of some of those people that he had wronged? Probably. But grace would extend through him to tell him to go and apologize and to do whatever he could to make it right. And you may say, oh, how are you going to make that right? I don't know. And he probably died never feeling as though he did. Paul died. He said so many times, I'm the chief of sinners. He said many times, he said, the, the, the recollection of what I had done before to believers haunts me. But it's, all I can do is plead the grace of God. All I can do is plead the grace. In Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Never doubt where you stand before God. You stand in grace. And at that moment when you stand before God face to face, you will stand in grace. As a child of God, if you know him as Savior, that is where you will stand. You will stand in grace. Many people like to look at it as the scales of justice. When your sins are mounted against you, the standing in the grace of God, those sins will not be held to your account. So it's a justifying grace. And it is also, number three, a maturing grace. It is a maturing grace. 
It's a grace that grows us and sanctifies us. His grace should become more and more beautiful to us as we grow in him. It becomes more and more amazing as we grow in him. More than likely, the last time John Newton sang Amazing Grace was more sweet to him than the first time he wrote it. Because as he had grown in grace, it began to become more beautiful to him as well. In 2 Peter, here's what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3. He says, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him will be both glory now and to the day of eternity or now and forever. See, as we grow in the grace of God, his glory becomes more revealed to us. Verse number three of the song says, through many dangers, through many toils, through many snares, I have already come. It is grace that has brought me safe thus far, and it is his grace that will lead me home. It tells us basically three things about God's grace that it matures us, is that God's grace goes with us. Wherever we go, his grace goes with us. We oftentimes forget that. We think that we have to come to certain places for the grace of God. I have to have my nose in a Bible for his grace to be real. I have to be in a church for his grace to be active. His grace goes with us because we stand in grace. It is a grace that goes with us. It's not just something that we get when we were saved, and then now I have to do all this stuff to maintain it. Grace is freely given. His grace also will change us. The main aim of grace is to make us new. The main aim of mercy is to forgive us and make us clean, but the aim of grace is to make us new. That we are not left by ourselves as we were. We are made in his image and in his likeness, and we become conformed to the image of his son. You see, God loves us. I love this phrase. I wish I had come up with it, but I didn't. God loves us too much to leave us the way that we are, the moment we're saved. God loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. It's his grace that we are sanctified and that we grow in him. I love what John Newton said, and this is a a quote that he had as he was getting towards the end of his life, and people were asking him about the song and about his ministry and about how he said, somebody asked him, do you think that the good outweighed your bad? Finally, at the end of your life, and he said this. He said, I'm not the man that I ought to be. I'm not the man that I wish to be. I'm not the man that I even hope to be, but by the grace of God, I'm not the man that I used to be. And that's for me, who tends to be a perfectionist. I've talked about this a little bit. Who I tend to be a perfectionist in my walk with Christ. I tend to think, man, if I mess up here, how can God, I mean, how could God ever want me again and stuff? That's just, at my core, that's who I am. So I'm really, I really have to learn how to walk in grace. That's really one of the big, the big proponents behind the new name of our church when we decided to replant was walking in the way of grace. Because if we're not careful, we can all have a little Pharisee within us to think if I just do all these things and I make God, I make God, you know, I've got to be special in God's eyes if I do all the right things. No, we're special in God's eyes because he created us and because he's offered grace to us. See, grace will change us and grace will strengthen us through the testing that we go through as well. If you're in a valley right now, understand that God's grace is not waiting for you on the mountaintop. God's grace is with you right now too. God's grace is not something that's just out there somewhere that you will attain when you get your act together. God's grace is with you, helping you get it together right now. I'm not the man that I ought to be. I'm not the man that I hope to be, but I thank God that I'm not the man I was. God's grace strengthens us. And then number four, it's a comforting grace. 
God's grace actively comforts us as well. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul's writing to a church that was losing people left and right. We don't know exactly why, but they were losing people that they loved. And he said this in verse number six. He says, may the Lord Christ Jesus himself and the God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement by good hope and by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and in every good word. They were in a hard ministry field. And many of them were beginning to fail in their health. And many of them were beginning to struggle. And he said, it will be the grace of God that will continue to encourage your hearts. Later on in, later on in Thessalonians, he talks about what will take place when Jesus comes again. Like he talked about in John 14, when he says, I'll come and receive you unto myself. He talks a little bit about how that's going to look and what, it's gonna, what it'll be like. But then John Newton pins this in verse number four of his song. He says, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as my life endures. You see, God is good. And that means that his promises are good too. God is good to us. And again, you may be in the valley wondering, where's the evidence of his goodness at? The evidence is right here in his word. The evidence is around us. The evidence is, is, is in the fact that you're in the valley and standing in the grace of God. Again, God's goodness is not always found in his deliverance, but God's goodness is always found in his continual presence with us. God's presence is his grace. I love what Psalm chapter 8 says. What is a human being or what is man that you are mindful of him? What is a son of man that you look after him? So it's a grace that is comforting to us. Many of you have gone, but just about everyone in here have probably been at a funeral of a loved one. And there's something different when that loved one knows Jesus. If you've been to the funeral of someone who didn't know Christ, it's a much different experience. And that's what leads us to, verse, to, the, to the fifth one. Is that it's a grace that I can die with. It's a dying grace. It's part of that comforting. It's a grace that carries us into eternity. Again, Grace is not just a little stop on the road. Grace is the fundamental foundation of our existence. So it's a grace that will carry me. It's a wonderful thing to know that dying grace. You've known people, I've known people, and we get that horrible news from the doctor that maybe they're sick and it's terminal. There's a difference between someone who knows and is walking with Christ and someone who doesn't know. The hope that they endure that with. I hope and I pray that if that's the way that I end up going one day, and not to be morbid, but I hope that I'll have that same type of grace that I've seen others exhibit. My father-in-law was a great example to me as he suffered from cancer. Never saw him get down, never saw him get mad, never saw him just say, I can't believe it's me and not somebody else. I thought it for him. But I didn't see that happen because I think it's that grace that leads us, that grace that leads us home. When my time comes, I want my funeral to be one that's more of a celebration of where I'm going than more grieving over the fact that I won't be going where I went ever again. That's what I, I hope to have. It's a grace that I can die with. And here's what John Newton said. He said, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. See, here's the thing about God's grace. What good is God's grace if it doesn't last? And this is the way many of us are living our lives today, unfortunately. 
We're saved by the grace of God, and that's wonderful. But what's grace doing for you today? And I can promise you, if you don't see it, it's only because you haven't been looking because God's grace is still working today. It's still working. What good is grace if it doesn't last? A salvation that you can live with is one thing, but what good is a grace that you can't die with? That's what's wonderful. That's why we come and worship Jesus. That's why for centuries, Christians have, have sacrificed their life and limb to see that the gospel goes forth because it's worth dying with. And it's the only thing worth dying with. And then lastly, it's a crowning grace. It's the beautiful thing is that we're no longer slaves to our sin. We are no longer slaves and sinners, but we're elevated to joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God's grace doesn't leave me the way I was, doesn't leave me where I got myself in sin, but it elevates me to a place I don't deserve to be as a joint heir with Christ Jesus. In Titus chapter three, it says, so having then been justified by his grace, we have become heirs with the hope of eternal life. Verse number six of the song, Amazing Grace, says, the earth shall soon dissolve like snow and the sun will forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. See, we can attain heaven because of the crowning grace of Jesus Christ, the crowning grace of God, because at one day when this life is over, we stand in the grace of God, but then grace upon grace upon grace, he's going to reward us in heaven. We receive a mansion in glory. We receive eternity with him where there's no sin, there's no sorrow, there's no headaches, there's no allergies, there's no COVID, there are no more elections. Kentucky won't lose anymore. All those bad things. It's a crowning grace. But as we close out this morning, the last thing we have to understand is that it's undeserved. The most amazing thing about God's grace is that it's given even though it's undeserved. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. And what does God's grace do as we close this morning and get ready for invitation? It delivers us from the penalty of sin. It delivers us from the power of sin and it delivers us from the presence of sin. The question is, will you receive and will you accept that grace today? But what good is God's grace if we receive it? It's wonderful to us. But what God's grace should also do is should compel, it to show, compel us to show it to others. Um, a few years ago, um, there was a Broadway play that kind of took the world by storm. Uh, it was a historical play about Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers. The play was just simply called Hamilton. And it follows the life and the legacy of Alexander Hamilton, which is not, doesn't get as much press as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and all of those other, all those other guys. But Alexander Hamilton was kind of right there in the mix at the founding and at the birth of our nation. He was our first secretary of the treasury. His picture's on the $10 bill. I don't see $10 bills anymore because they usually go into the hands of my daughters really, really quick. So I heard that he was a good looking guy at one point. Well, this play was written and it was controversial for a lot of different reasons, but it basically tried to follow the narrative and tell the story of Alexander Hamilton. This was one of the first Broadway plays that they tried to set the entire script to music and they did a pretty good job with it. Music is really pretty good. My favorite scene and my favorite song in the entire play happens at, towards the end of the play. And this is after, and this, is, this really happened in, in Hamilton's life, this happens after Hamilton pulls a David. 
We talked about David's sin with Bathsheba. Hamilton kind of does the same thing. While his wife is away in upstate New York, he has an affair with, with a woman that ends up getting found out and exploited by his political rivals. And basically that affair ruined his possibility of ever being the president. Because back in those days, morals matter. And um, so as he found out about this, all the letters and all the writing and all the details of that affair got released. And his wife, Eliza, who had stood by his side the whole time, sees this. And so now on top of all of this, all of this career ending things that his sin had brought to him, now his wife is destroyed and humiliated before the entire New York, the entire New York City and, and all throughout the, the new country of the United States because everybody knows their secret business. And so now she's left with this idea, do I stay with him or do I go? And many people say, well, back in those days, women couldn't go very far without a man. Well, Eliza brought the money to the relationship because she was from one of the richest families in the country at that point. So she could have left him, but she chose not to. To add insult to injury and to add worse, worse upon worse, Alexander's son, Philip, going to defend his father's honor and his mother's honor because he was tired of people talking about them as he went out and he walked through the streets. He challenged someone to a duel, a pistols at dawn type of thing, and Philip lost the duel and he lost his life. So towards the end of the play, you see this scene where Alexander and Eliza are standing in this garden and it's, the song is called It's Quiet Uptown. And Alexander is reviewing his entire life and talking about the worthlessness of all of his accomplishments because of what his sin and what his mistake had destroyed. He's standing there in shambles of a career. He's standing there in shambles of a marriage and he's standing there grieving the loss of his son that would not have happened if it were not for his mistake. Kind of like David with Bathsheba. And what does Alexander want? He doesn't want to be reinstated. He doesn't want for people to forget. What does he want? He wants grace. He wants forgiveness. He begs Eliza's forgiveness. And here's, here's the line that, that just, that gets me. In the song, it says there's a grace that's too powerful to name. And it's at that moment that Eliza takes Alexander's hand and forgives him. And I don't know how she does it. And some of you may be sitting here as today, and your wives are, or, or your women, wait, one day you hope to be a wife, and you're thinking, if my husband ever did that to me, I don't know if I could find the grace to forgive. I don't know how she did it. But history tells us that Eliza was a believer. Eliza had trusted in Christ. So from depth within, with everything she had and everything God would give her, she found the grace to forgive Hamilton. And later on, Hamilton ends up dying in a duel himself with Aaron Burr, which is probably what you learn in history class. But after that, what you don't hear a lot about is Eliza and what she does. For 50 years of her life, she spends the rest of her life carrying on Alexander's good legacy, the things that he started. And the best thing is, is that there is an orphanage today that sits in New York City that is still open today that she began in honor of her husband because Alexander was an orphan who came here from the Caribbean as an immigrant. And that orphanage still stands today. It was the first private orphanage ever instituted in America. None of that would have happened if it had not been for grace given to Alexander. Why do I end with this? I end it with this because of that one line in the song. There's a grace too powerful to name. Well, here's the thing, church. 
this is a secular play. It was a secular song, probably written by secular people. While they may not know the grace is too powerful to name, we know the name of powerful grace, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the way God's grace is seen is through our forgiveness. So maybe the challenge to you today is maybe there's somebody that you have been holding out resentment for. Maybe there's somebody you need to forgive and you need to show grace to. And you know that it's more than you can bear. You know that it's more than you can muster. Well, thanks be to God that God is overflowing, as Paul said, with grace. Show that grace. Maybe you're here or maybe you're listening and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Come to him today. This is his grace that he's made salvation available to you. Do we deserve it? No. But grace has a name. His name is Jesus. And grace is amazing. And grace is powerful. And grace is overflowing. But you have to receive it. You have to grab it. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.